Okay, so we're going to talk about a couple of things today. Yes, we're going to talk uh, Narnia first. Uh-huh. The new Narnia movie is the in the... The Dawn uh, Trader? The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, yeah. Treader. C.S. Lewis. Um, and then uh, we're going to talk about, week. in honor of Terriers, rest in peace, we're going to talk about TV shows that went out way too soon. Yes, canceled TV shows in honor of one of the best shows on TV this year that we just found out Monday is canceled. Mm-hmm. And then I'm gonna I'm going to admit that Eric Moline was right about something. It's a new feature that we're gonna uh, have every week where Trevin tells me how right I was. It's called "You Were Right," <laughs> and it's uh, the theme song is by Built to Spill. All right, so start us off, Don Trader. Uh, uh, it's actually the Don Treader. Uh, but there is some trading going on in the movie, a little mm-hmm. slave trade action. Uh, this th- <laughs> Really? Seriously? Yeah. yeah, well, okay, so uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is C.S. Lewis's third uh, book in the Narnia series, mm-hmm. and it's very episodic. Uh, it's got the two youngest Pevensey children, Edmund and Lucy, and uh, they go back into the world of Narnia after their previous two adventures. Yeah. And this time they bring their crazy little cousin, uh, who's like a non-believer. Um, so... In, in terms of uh, the Christian metaphors that are, that are going on here, um, uh, their little cousin would be the atheist, and the lion mm. is still Jesus, mm-hmm. um, and uh, they're still learning uh, hard life lessons What's the polar about bear? faith. The polar bear, that's the golden compass. <laughs> right, so who gets, who gets their jaw ripped off in this movie? Nobody, unfortunately. But this is about, I have to say, since, you, since you're bringing up the golden compass, uh-huh. uh, another uh, religious metaphor uh, from the other side of the fence, possibly, not the satanic side, of course, but the uh, uh, maybe uh, agnostic side, uh, this, this is a similar failure in that the voyage of the Dawn Treader, mm-hmm. uh, it just kind of moves along at this kind of boring, kind of by-the-books, uh, generic... Uh, children's fantasy pace, and right. uh, it's 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 really frustrating. I thought the first uh, ten to twenty minutes of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, were really great, where uh, you, the World War II planes were flying overhead, yeah. and and you got the feeling that these young kids and and uh, the UK were really threatened by this thing, and they escaped into this fantasy world. And I was like, wow, what a what a great opening to a series. And then I think from then on out. Uh, all of those movies have have gone downhill, and and this one may be the best of the three, yeah. uh, which isn't saying much. It's directed by Michael Apted, mm-hmm. who we know from uh, the Up series of uh, documentaries um, since uh, what the sixties. Yeah, he's been following these kids around and filming them every seven years, and they're now uh, adults. I think the last one was forty nine Up, maybe. So every seven years he re- revisits them. Um, you know, I would have thought he would have had a better grasp on, on, on the characters. And honestly, there's a couple scenes in here where Edmund and Lucy really get to, um, you know, they, they really have, uh, some stuff that they're going through and they get to illustrate that they're, they're, they're tried by a couple things. Unfortunately, those moments last about five minutes in the entire film. Each of them gets a little moment and then they move right on into generic action scene. It's like a very special episode. Well, yeah, you know, if it was a very special episode, (laughs) it might have been a little bit more uh, something. Like, it's just, my problem with this series uh, is is that it just seems like they're doing, uh, it's like like what I didn't like about the middle section of the Harry Potter series, where I just feel like they're trying to fit all these moments in and they're reorganizing them all so that fans will kind of think it makes sense. 
but it just leaves moviegoers kind of bored and bewildered. Um, and 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 this movie, you know, uh, it, it it's 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 3D. Uh, it's up converted, so it's not actually filmed in 3D. There's no use for that. There's CGI effects throughout the entire thing, and some of the yeah. most boring effects we've seen. Your the villain is a giant green smoke. And that's just not effective. What's that supposed to symbolize? Um, I would imagine that would be the hand of Satan. I don't know. Okay. It, it basically takes you know the people away, and they have to go rescue them. Hmm. Um, and then at the end, you know, uh, maybe it's long, pornography. What's maybe, that? Maybe the fog is pornography. It could be pornography. Um, or higher education. Yeah. Well, you know, and then so one of the other things that it's just uh, after three movies, it's just hard to suffer through is that when the cousin goes to Narnia. Yeah. And he's been making fun of these his cousins for uh, you know this fantasy world that they believe in, and then he's right there in the middle of it, and there's a talking minotaur, mm-hmm. and he's still like, "You guys, this is crazy. What's going on here? I can't. <laughs> you and your stupid world. I can't believe I'm stuck in this world." And it's just like, Ugh. so I don't know. There's a lot of frustrating things. Prince Caspian is back. He's now King Caspian. Yeah, people bow to him because he's king, but nobody's earned anything. Um, and, and I really feel like, uh, they're not really tested, but they're doing adult things and, mm-hmm. you know, they're fighting these beasts and, and it's, it's basically Pirates of the Caribbean crossed with Lord of the Rings light. So, right. uh, I can't recommend it. Um, I really how does, think how does it handle, how does it handle time lapses? Because that's a big part of the books. Every time they go back to Narnia, it's been, you know, a, a, a much longer time in Narnia than it was. They collapse the all of the episodes mm-hmm. in, in in this, and so they they go through the motions of each one of those little uh, tests or little little uh, uh, you know sequences. But they they put them all together, so it's just one journey. It's just one thing, um, and this one is not out of order. It, it it's linear in the fact that uh, you know their two older children are somewhere else, and they're going to Narnia without them, and everything is has progressed linear so far. So. I don't know if it's going to continue. I don't know if the silver chair, if they're going to start messing with things. Yeah. Um, you know, Disney dropped out of this franchise yeah, it's a Walden long time now. ago. It's just Walden. It was, it's just Walden, and now Fox has picked up the distribution for it. Um, I think it's going to have a long way to go to continue because uh, this is just more the same. And, uh, you know, I, I maybe if you're a really big Narnia fan and you just want to see the book come to life in some aspect... This might be good, but I think even for kids, it's going to be, uh, you know, pretty pretty boring. It's pretty run-of-the-mill stuff. Okay, well, now we're going to talk about in honor of Terriers, which you and I both campaigned oh, and loved dearly, yeah. and not but one day after the finale, not even well a weekend, I guess we yeah. got we got a weekend. We had a weekend of uh, and hope. Mon- Monday came and the news. The news was bad. <laughs> they canceled canceled Terriers. Terriers was on FX and yeah. it was created by Ted Griffin. It was uh, produced by Sean Ryan, who did The Shield, and Tim Minier, who was behind Angel. Uh, and and uh, it was Donald Logue and uh, Michael Raymond James uh, as these shaggy dog uh, PIs, these these losers, these slackers, these misfits who didn't fit in anywhere. And uh, at the beginning of this series, they had their moral compass. 
They went through a whole lot of crap. And then at the end, they faced a crossroads, and there was a nice cliffhanger. We were about to see what great stuff they had in store and good humor and great writing for next season. And then and FX said, did you hear this? Yeah, they said, I did. Even actually. if you had twice as many viewers as you have now, we still would have canceled you. That's how bad your ratings were. Yeah. So there well, was no hope at there, all. There wasn't. I mean, and, and they actually really, really, really were worried about it because the the FX president actually came out and explained the, the cancellation, like you were saying, but he went even deeper into it. I mean, because a lot of people were concerned that the uh, the ad campaign behind it yeah. was what killed it because yeah. uh, if, if you saw the dogs. ads yeah they were just dogs with a tennis ball in their mouth that said terrier there were billboards in um, Los Angeles and New York that did that and then there yeah. were these teaser commercials that ran for almost you know three four months out that just had um, the yeah 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 song in it and a dog at a different point and, yeah. and it didn't explain anything you didn't know what it was and it wasn't until like less than a month until the show actually premiered that you got any kind of detail at all about yeah. what the show was. Um, and so there was a lot of concern, did the advertising kill this thing? Yes. You know, it's it's called Terriers, so that doesn't explain what it, it doesn't is. Help, yeah. yeah, and then the ad campaign made it look like it might have been about dogs. Well, one of the alternative titles was Beach Dicks. <laughs> and it's, it's Beach Kevin Smith show. Beach Yeah, Beach Dicks did not fly. But um yeah, the the president came out, uh John Landgraf and said that they actually went and they they seriously focus grouped the advertising after the show tanked as hard as it did to see if maybe it was their fault. He even said, you know, if it had been solely advertising, I wouldn't have canceled it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a lot of executive talk, but I actually believe it because if, if any cable show network is has been great and patient with weird little shows, it's been FX. Shield I mean, damages. Shields damages. Archer. Archer's yeah. getting a second season. Yeah. Sons of Anarchy. Like they were really patient with that show, and it got greenlit for a fourth season midway through its third. I mean, they've been patient with these slow, the, these sort of slowly developing dramas or these shows that haven't really found their feet yet, and they have had some serious missteps like Testies. Remember that show? Mm, yeah, yeah. They had. Some, they've I had some like bad ones. I feel like you're about to let them off the hook, though, and I'm not happy with your uh, with the way you're going here. I'm, you know. Honestly, a great show is a great show. A great show is a great show. I'm not saying it shouldn't be on TV television. Sales, you know, yeah, find I'm, its audience. No, I'm not saying it shouldn't be on TV, but at the same time, like when their numbers were as bad as their numbers were, and their numbers were horrible. Yeah, like I know. their numbers, um, they they pulled less than a million their premiere, and we're talking about Nielsen. Yeah, are you in a Nielsen family? I'm not. No. No, I mean I don't. Uh, who you know? I mean, if they're not measuring uh, people watching it on Hulu and uh, you know stuff like that and Netflix yeah. or whatever. I mean, if they're just if they're not looking at internet at all, then they're not really. Yeah, well, you know, you know they, they did they did count repeat viewings and they did look at um um I'm D- DVR stuff too. I'm just gonna make excuses. But anyway, they, they looked at it and they said that even if it had been a different name, even if it had been a different ad campaign, like the ad campaign wasn't what killed it. Was the short version of it. And um, his explanation and what the what the survey really said was that it was because it was a subtle, slowly developing, slow burning TV show. Yeah, after, and, it took and me the, about Amer- three and the American weeks. audience really wasn't up right. for that. It took me about three weeks to fall in love with the show. Yeah, and I have and to say, you know, if it, if it hadn't been for the other ways to view it, if it hadn't been for Hulu, if it hadn't been for all the repeat viewings, I never until the last three episodes made it a point to catch it like. The day it came on, if I could, I would. Right, but 
I, you know, I would fall back on Hulu or I knew I could catch it on a Saturday or, you know, I, I would watch it some other time. So I'm actually probably part of the problem, but <laughs> I watched it in one Terriers, way or the other. So rest in peace. Rest in peace, Terriers, and look for that on DVD and maybe if enough of us buy it, it might come back. But I'm not going to hold my breath on that. That the, There's the family guy and almost nothing else I Futurama, can think of. Futurama. Futurama survived. Okay. And then every so now and then... only animated shows. Every now and then you get... Um, a, a one season show that the cult popularity finally after years may not get it back on TV, but it might get it to the big screen. And I'm going to use that segue to talk about my um, personal favorite one season TV show. What's that? It's Firefly. Nice. Hands down, my favorite, you know, canceled too soon TV show is Joss Whedon's Firefly. Um, the quick version of the plot is it's about a, a, a ragtag <laughs> batch of. <laughs> Um, space cowboys on this ship called Serenity. Yes, they are led by Malcolm um, Reynolds, who is played by Nathan Fillion. Yes, um, in perfect, you know, Nathan Fillion mode. In the perfect Han Solo mode. Yeah, I was gonna say it's basically a ship full of Han Solos. Well, he's and, Han Solo. No, I think they're all Han Solo hmm. in their own way, and I don't want to get into that nerd fight. But what I will say <laughs> is that it was a really sharp, sharp um, show. Well written. Um, well acted, perfectly cast, but the the premise I think is what really got me the most, and how well they executed the premise. Because I said space cowboys earlier, but that really is what it's about. They he managed to meld these sci-fi trappings with a lot of the Western idealism, a lot of the Western um, uh, archetypes, mm-hmm. and great in, sense of humor. In a great yeah, just and it had also it had a, a great sense of humor and it had a bite. And um, rich detail and backstory. Yeah, and the, and the movie actually, the movie has its own problems, but overall, the movie was satisfying as well. I, I, the movie I actually was great. really loved it. Yeah. And one thing about Whedon that I always have liked, and and you know, this is why I have so much faith in the Avengers movie, is that he's one of the best ensemble uh, writers in television or film. He's at full force in Serenity, you know, and he, he did the same thing with Buffy. He had a great ensemble cast in over, what, five seasons? Buffy of, the Vampire yeah. Slayer? Seven seasons. Seven. Yeah. Seven seasons. And five seasons of Angel. Angel, yeah. I was kind of backwards. Anyway, across uh, seven seasons of Buffy, he really gave every character in that cast an identity yep. and and made them interesting and didn't really lean on any of them in a lazy way. You know, he didn't have the token, you know, Will's token lesbian. You know, he didn't really do right. that. Everyone had their own thing and the same thing was starting to happen with uh firefly he just didn't really have enough time to flesh that out there is in the exposition you do get there's some great expository episodes um um janestown is one of my favorites adam baldwin is uh this this guy jane on the ship and he's i mean they're all sort of surly people but he's he's the surliest he'll do anything for money and you get to see this really interesting um story about how um, this entire town sort of worships him because of something he did on accident. Yeah. So they land on this planet, and this town remembers him. There's a statue in his name and everything. And you get a lot of, like, you get a window into his character, and you get to see more why he is the way he is and what happens. And then the other episode that everyone always talks about, because they should, is Out of Gas. And Out of Gas is, that's the, I think, I'm pretty sure that we knew he was going to get canceled and so there's a, the entire episode is a flashback episode where, um, and it's cut between flashbacks and the present, so I shouldn't say it's all in the past, but it, 
cuts between Malcolm Reynolds on the ship as it's running out of oxygen and jumps back in time to how each different member of the crew got on board. And that's a really, it's a really telling episode and it's handled very delicately. And the conclude the way it concludes is, um, poignant, really poignant, quite <laughs> poignant. So Whedon had another movie that got canceled that I'll mention, or another TV show that I'll mention briefly called Dollhouse. Yeah. And this this TV show a couple of seasons ago also canceled by Fox. I'm not sure why he went back to Fox at all. Yeah, they never. I mean, you know how FX it's a Fox network and FX yeah. is really patient. Fox is the opposite of that. Right. Fox right. kills all kinds of stuff. In fact, Fox ran Firefly out of order, which was one of the reasons mm-hmm. the episodes, which was one of the reasons it tanked so bad. Uh, so, but Dollhouse, uh, just real quickly, I stuck with that show. I started with it because it was Whedon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hated the first like five or six episodes. Uh, it, it was starring Eliza Dushku who played Faith and Buffy, uh, and also in the Angel series. And she's got another thing. She's been in a million canceled TV shows. But anyway, Dollhouse actually found its footing about halfway through the first season. Yeah. And then by the time it barely got renewed for a second season, which was a miracle, uh, it really started to hit its stride, and then uh, it pulled what I like to call the Twin Peaks move mm-hmm. uh, and had to uh, basically uh, hurry up and get everything over with and wrap it up uh, and, and so, they, so they could get it done because they got canceled. So uh, Dollhouse is frustrating. If you're a Whedon fan and you've heard it's bad, give it a chance. Maybe you know, give your, watch the first six episodes, but no... You know that they're not the best, and 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 you will enjoy it after that. I can I can actually vouch for uh, that the that sci-fi, uh, the overall big sci-fi picture, and and that one was really cool. Um, and so going right into that, uh, we can talk about Twin Peaks. Yeah, and, it's one of yours. I mean, it would be one of mine too. But Twin Peaks is really weird because right out of the gate, it was really popular. It was, yeah. it was strange. It wasn't like anything else on TV. Very stylized. It was David Lynch. It was Tim Frost. And, uh, you know, it was, it was uh, the, the mystery of who killed this girl, Laura Palmer, kind of became a pop culture sensation in a really yeah. short amount of time. And that first season was really short. I believe it was like a half season. So when, when they got renewed, it was no surprise. But what ABC did, which was really, really stupid is they forced Lynch and the creators of the show to solve the mystery (laughs) of who killed Laura Palmer halfway through season two. That's the whole reason everybody... I mean, that's not the whole reason. We loved the characters and we got into them. But this overarching mystery, which is what Lost had done so well... Uh, uh, you know, continued, and there were all these little mysteries being solved along the way, uh, and 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 the characters were deeper and richer. Uh, anyway, as soon as uh, Laura Palmer's murder was solved in the second season, mm-hmm. the ratings took a nosedive, uh, and they, they tried to start up another thing, which actually I thought was kind of awesome. Wyndham Earl was just a crazy, nutty character uh, from from. Uh, Kyle MacLachlan, Agent Dale Cooper's past that didn't seem to make any sense at all yeah. on TV. And I loved that. But then this, what happened is at the very end of the mm-hmm. series, when he found out he was getting canceled, Lynch was so pissed off that he just started killing people off. And the show just ends in this really crazy fashion. And, and uh, you know, everybody goes up and smoke pretty much. So, um, but Twin Peaks, uh, it's out. It's uh, There's a big gold box. Yeah, you can get so on it's DVD. like a hundred bucks, or at it's, least it was for a while. I think it's probably cheaper now, but whatever it is, it's worth it. At least uh, rent it. I can tell you one that I loved um, for just a little bit, and it was uh, Veronica Mars. 
Veronica Mars. Watched that show. You got three seasons. Um, it was on the UPN, which became the CW. Which um, is now the RTC. Which is now the RTC. So, yeah, whatever. I don't know. It's it's actually on ham radio now. I think <laughs> it's a it's a ham radio frequency. Um, Veronica Mars was. It's written by uh, Rob Thomas, not from Matchbox Twenty. Damn it. Yeah, I know. I miss that guy. And it's about the title character Veronica Mars, played by Kristen Bell. And she is she goes to a popular uh, or a, a high school in California, Neptune, and Neptune is clearly San Diego. Every season is is a giant mystery, so there's it does a really good job of there's an overarching mystery, mm-hmm. and then there are individual episodic elements that work together too. So in the same um, episode, you might have the A story be about just one specific plot, but then all these uh, little bits and pieces that attribute to the the uh, the big story um, prop, pop up in either the B story or maybe part of the A story. It really just depends. Okay, well, speaking of high school canceled TV shows, let's talk about what I consider to be maybe the best TV show of all time. Can I say that? Yeah, go ahead. I mean, um, I'll totally make fun of you for it. Yeah, uh, we're not talking about The Sopranos. We're not talking about... Uh, Seinfeld or The mm-hmm. Simpsons or anything uh, like that. We're talking about the one season wonder, 18 episodes, I believe, maybe 20 something if you get the DVD, Freaks and Geeks. Uh, this show uh, has more truth in 30 minutes than an entire season of uh, virtually anything else on TV. And it spawned uh, all of these actors who we're seeing all over the place in, in films. Seth Rogen. Um, Linda Cardellini was the main character. Uh, she's basically, uh, uh, besides the Scooby-Doo series, uh, she's been on ER, among other things, um, and, and probably the least successful. Uh, well, John Daly was the younger brother. Anyway, uh, uh, Martin Starr, uh, Seth Rogen. Um, I already said Seth Rogen, didn't Franco, I? James Franco. James Franco. How Sam, could I forget Sam him? Levine, Jason Siegel. Sam uh, Levine Siegel. from the Glorious Bastards. Jason Siegel, who's Martin's, doing the new Muppet movie. Martin Starr. Yep. Who's, he's, he's had steady TV work, and he shows up in Judd Apatow's movies. Oh, Judd and Apatow. And you can't really yeah. forget that it's it was Judd Apatow's brainchild, but he rolled off of um, Freaks and Geeks and did another TV show. He did. Uh, uh, he did Undeclared. It was also after, unjustly canceled. Which was also canceled after one season and, and also starred Seth Rogen. That was about a, a Jade Baruchel who played a, a college freshman. Um, and that was a half-hour show. Not mm-hmm. quite as good as, as Freaks and Geeks. Um, but, but you know, what I really wanted to stress about Freaks and Geeks is um, it took place in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And so uh, if you lived through that time period like I did, uh, there was a million different references to pop culture and things like that. But what Apatow and co-creator Paul Feig did uh, was they made, uh, you know, these, these people, these, these freaks and these geeks, uh, you know, feel like, like us, you know what I mean? And, and it was everything that you related about being uncomfortable in childhood. And they pretty much took every uncomfortable moment and, (laughs) and, and gave each character, like you said earlier about uh, Joss Whedon gave every one of these characters, Great moments and great episodes, and they did surprising things with them. By the end of the series, James Franco, who plays this total burnout, was playing D and D with the geeks. Yeah. So it was it was an amazing show, and every time I watch it, um, I think there's more heart and humor uh, and truth in it than uh, almost anything else that uh, that I've seen on on TV, and it's eminently rewatchable. Yeah, um, that's true. You so can... that's the reason Apatow is 
as big as he is now because uh, he knows how to do those kind of things. And yeah, you know, so my favorite thing about uh, Undeclared was when they were really struggling and they were really worried about ratings. They just called in every favor they could, like Stiller, Adam Sandler Feral. cameos, Farrell yeah. cameos. Like they just they just called every every favor that they could possibly get to try and stay on the air. It still didn't work, but they, no. they tried. And that was another Fox show. That was another Fox show that got canned. Speaking of Fox, Arrested Development was canned. Mm-hmm. And that's funny because it's got such a huge second life on DVD, and now they're showing it. Uh, they showed it on HDNet. On I- it was IFC. one of the first shows on HDNet. It's on IFC. It was on Nights on Car- uh, Adult Swim. Cartoon yeah. Network's nighttime section showed it. Um, yeah, and that's a show that bears repeated viewing. And as it's well. all on Netflix and Hulu. I mean, it's as as um, prevalent as humanly possible. It's everywhere. And like you were saying earlier, it may spawn a film. They've been talking about it for about three years. And I don't think it's ever going to happen. No, it's not. <laughs> but um, it's a great show, and I would love to see it happen. Another show uh, on HBO that got canceled right around the time when it seemed like it should have been wrapping up, partially because uh, David Milch, its mm-hmm. creator, uh, is a little unbalanced, perhaps. Yeah. yeah. He uh, goes Deadwood. through these creative swings, yeah. yeah. And he was at the low point when Deadwood was starting to die. And so what was the TV show that he started up at that point? Well, he hadn't quite started it yet it was what he was going to do next but it was in pre-production when deadwood went under okay um but the the show that followed was john from cincinnati right and it started really promising i don't even think at this point i i would have loved to have seen it go on but i don't know how they could have because he sort of wrote it into a corner and then left it there (laughs) but it started with this really original premise um and there was some mystery involved this this sort of stranger comes to town johnny monad it's, oh, a, right. it's a surfer town. Um, Bruce Greenwood is this legendary surfer. Great, you know, we've gone on about him before. He's a fantastic actor. He's this legendary surfer who hurt himself and won't get back out on the water. And he has a grandson. Well, he has a son um, that uh, is a heroin addict, or he was a surfer and then he just sort of burned out, and now he's he lives in squalor and, and shoots up whenever he can. And But he takes care of, of his grandson, and uh, his grandson is a phenomenal surfer. And so he's really worried that his, his grandson's going to follow in his footsteps. And John, John from Cincinnati, he is, it turns out, um, he is an agent of God. That's, okay. that's the plot twist. Fair enough. Um, he, and it goes about it in a very strange way, and, and, and it really sort of, it was definitely the jumping off point. And I remember Milch did an interview on like uh, Craig Ferguson, yeah, where he said, "I don't know what it's about." <laughs> like he he literally said that they asked he asked Ferguson asked him about it, and he said, "I don't know what it's about." You know, I think if God tried to get in touch with us, it would be in a pretty drastic way. And yeah, if you if so, it. in in the grand scheme of things, it sounds like an insane premise. But when you try to describe uh, the plot of Breaking Bad, a high school teacher who deals meth. Uh, because he wants to raise money for his family before he dies of cancer and ends up losing his soul. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, you know, I guess uh, these days you can't put it past uh, uh, TV creators to just come up with the craziest idea. It's not about the plot. It's about yeah. how they carry it out. Yeah, and Milch, I mean, Milch is just one of the best television writers ever. So, I mean, And he, he cut his teeth on Hill Street Blues. Right. And um, he did some stuff on uh, NYPD Blue when it got started. Um, then he moved on to uh, HBO, finally gave him a shot. And, you know, he got three seasons of Deadwood out of the way right. that were fantastic. Um, and then the, what third, the third one ends kind of poorly. But, yeah, it, they, they weren't going to renew it. 
and they promised him three um, made-for-TV Deadwood movies. To and wrap it all up. To wrap it all up, to make it all make sense. To so they, Even the last episode just kind of ends on an, un, on an uncertain note. It's not a cliffhanger, but it just, it's kind of a sigh of an ending. You know, yeah. so it's like, huh. And um, I kept, I, when it first canceled, or wasn't, when it first concluded, I really kept hoping that I would hear more about these TV movies and Milch just burned out and never did them. Went, yep. on to, went on to John from Cincinnati, ran that show into the ground um, a third or two-thirds of the way in. And last I heard, he was going to do another show for HBO about set in the 70s about a Vietnam vet who comes back and he's an undercover cop. Hmm. But, yeah, I don't even know if that's gotten out of the gate. Who knows? So. I mean, you know, I wouldn't have watched Terriers if it wasn't for the talent behind it. I watched the first right. episode because of the, the, the creators and the producers yeah. and, and the actors. So... These days, you never can tell, you know? Yeah. So, uh, Terriers, we're going to miss you. And uh, here's to hoping you have a second life. So, now we've come to the segment of the program where Trevin tells me how awesome I am. Yes, this is a segment called You Were Right, (laughs) which I hate and just made up but it's true <laughs> um a couple of episodes back eric uh threw a little praise towards let me in i did a little the, a, a little american, more than a little the american um remake of the written beloved. In, of the beloved let the right one in right and i'm gonna duck now to avoid the incoming comments and and and, and hate speech but i haven't seen let the right one all the way through <laughs> yeah I haven't. <laughs> All I, the way through. That's the part that befuddles me. Yeah. Like why anybody would start that and then like go, you know what? I'm just not interested. Is well, it was, at mid, it was at midnight. Yeah. I was exhausted. You had and your computer in front. You're like sitting in No, I was watching my... T- I was watching it on... I was okay. watching on... Okay. I, I was paying attention to it. It's just like, yeah. Okay. Anyway, so... But I did get through... Let me... I've watched it four times now because we got a screener copy. Wow. Four times. Mm-hmm. Let me in. Let directed me in. by Matt Reeves. Written and directed by Matt Reeves. Cloverfield director mm-hmm. and uh, Lost, r- Lost writer director. He did some work with Lost. When, yep. yeah, and the thing that I really liked about the Michael film, Giacchino does a soundtrack. He's another Lost guy. And Up and uh, up. award winner yeah. for the Oscar last yep. year. He also did. Um, I mean, anything basically anything J.J. Abrams is attached to Giacchino works on. So Star Trek. I mean, it felt really <laughs> personal, and that's the thing. Like it, having not seen Let the Right One In. Here's my thing. I'm curious as to what it was about it that caught your eye. You okay? So I liked how personal it felt, and I really, really liked the way that they handled. First of all, I thought the casting was perfect. Yeah, uh, Cody Smith McPhee was wonderful, and he's just perfect in that role. And you just feel for that kid the entire time. The way that he's bullied and tortured. It's like watching a puppy get kicked over and over again. It's just so hard. And um, Chloe Moretz was great. As as uh, the female lead, um, we're talking about uh, ten uh, ten and eleven year old kids, and the yeah, movie, their characters are ten and eleven years ten and eleven old, years yeah. old, and and the way that they played them both with such, I don't know, I don't want to sound like too much of a douchebag, but there's such a fragility to both those characters, mm-hmm. and then there's this very intimate connection with both those characters, and I think that and the, that moment they, of friendship is mm-hmm. really. Drawn, when, drawn well. when that happens, yeah, when when you realize that they're gonna be friends, that's really really incredible. The other the other scene that I um absolutely loved was 
if if you've seen the original, it's the same general plot. So she's a vampire, um, and she has this sort of ward that takes care of her, and he's he's essentially he's a serial killer, and he hunts people, singles them out, um, and then when he's captured him, hangs them upside down and drains their blood so that she can she can feed. Because as we see in the movie, when she doesn't feed on a regular basis, it's bad news for everybody. Mm-hmm. And there's a scene and that guy's played by Richard Jenkins. Richard in this movie. Jenkins, yeah. and yeah, he's perfect in that role. He says very little, and yeah. there's so much going on. Mortifying there. too. Yeah. I mean, and the way it begins is completely different than the way the the Swedish version begins, and I think it works better the way it begins. Um, and, and the main the main difference, and I know I haven't seen it all the way through, but the main <laughs> difference I've noticed is that the American version is way more deliberate and way more um, deliberate in what way? In terms of visually deliberate, when you, like for example, oh, I no, no, I totally, I'm I'm right on that. Okay, um, <laughs> it's it's no longer Eric was right. <laughs> it's I'm right now. This we've moved on to a new segment, and it's called I'm right. The great example I can give is the scene where you see her feast for the first time under the bridge and the way that that's done in the Swedish version it's it's shocking but it's shocking because the entire movie has been so muted and subtle and focused up to that point and you see that happen and it it is very disturbing and how you know matter of fact and casually she does it you know that's that's really disconcerting. In the Matt Reeves version, she doesn't just in the, in the Swedish version she just jumps on the guy's back basically and bites him and he struggles for a bit and falls over and then she. Breaks. You're saying just? I mean, it's a it's, it's well. That's what I'm trying to say. Just in, it, in comparison to what happens in the in the Reeves version, right? Because she's when, obscured by shadow in mm-hmm. the original one, and it's mm-hmm. it's very strange to have this otherworldly thing come out of nowhere all of a sudden in this movie. And and it's she's jarring, she's yeah, and she's such a she's such a um, symbol of innocence, right? You know, and she's so small and fragile, and you don't think, and then she does what she does. But in in Matt Reeves' version, that event happens, and it happens in almost the exact same way. But it's far more visceral, and it's far more savage and brutal. And that's what I would say. Like it's it's visually striking in the sense that it doesn't really show any kind of restraint, and it works for it. And the the direction that they chose to take her as a creature is, um, I think, the right one um, because it's it's even more jarring. To see this little little girl turn into a wild animal, basically, and not I, not just any kind of wild animal that, that she right. actively hunts and destroys her prey. The the other scene, it was a long shot in the original. Yeah, you know, I thought it worked well that it was in the shadows. I thought the sound effects were great. And it's it's out. shadowed in the yeah. it's shadowed in the Reeves version too, right. but it's just the silhouette. You see what happens, and it's way more drastic. The then, original one, though, was very deliberate, formalistic uh, shots. You know of the yeah. of uh, you know this this snow covered economic. Yeah, the cinematography in the first everything. one is gorgeous, yeah. and the original, I guess, is gorgeous. And and I, I would say the cinematography in Reeves' version is too, but for a different reason. There's yeah. another great great example. Um, the the other one I'll talk about real quick before I finally say the words is um, <laughs> Richard. Like I said, Richard Jenkins is a serial killer. Well. Um, he decides to try and take out this, uh, he singles out this high school kid and the way he goes about doing it um, eventually ends up with him fleeing the scene 
in in the car and they keep the camera yeah. in the back seat of the car and they don't pull away yeah. and he goes off the road and tips it and we're still getting and that point of it's, view and it's all from that point of view you yeah. don't see it ever change and, and we have to say that scene is a dramatic improvement and complete reworking of that moment in the original movie. Yeah. And completely different from the book. Neither totally. Of them happened, yeah, so. totally, totally. I mean, just visually. Great cinema. Yeah, visually in, in just inspiring, honestly, and it's in its own strange way just to see how they handled that. And, you know, it's one of those shots where you go, how did they do that? You know, like, I, I, I still, I mean, did they just actually put a camera in there and flip it you know what did they actually do to make that scene ha- or that that shot happen but it's a great shot yeah. it's a great shot and then the um another scene the that humor I, in that scene we should mention too is amazing yeah. well I mean, it's the, so that's the other thing is there there are all these there are all these incredible little 80s touches you know and it doesn't do it for kitsch but there are just things like when the kids in the car and he turns the radio on and it's a it's a blue oyster cult you know burning it's just weird little elements here and there where you get these songs or a look at a television set or these things that date it, but they never there's never a there's never a subtitle that says 1984. You know, you you'll catch Reagan on a on a black and white TV in a corner, or you'll see an old car, or you'll hear like in, in, in an old 80s song, and I thought that was just such a uh, an, you know, and it was a subtle way to do that in comparison to how regular you know, American cinema works where it would say 1984 and then you'd have a bunch of archetypal like, oh my God. I'm glad you brought that up because this is, yes, it's an American remake, but it felt like uh, a personal independent film made by, uh, you know, uh, an indie filmmaker. It did not feel like the traditional Mm -hmm. American cash-in horror remake that we were all afraid that it would be. Yeah. I think giving this movie uh, credit as as an inspired uh, piece of creativity from this guy from Reeves... Uh, is a must. And yeah, I, and there I are all these little personal... I mean, his hands are just all over it, you know? Yeah. And it's, it, not, it's not going to be rewarded come Oscar time because it's no. just too much of a genre film, even though it doesn't really fit into that genre. They tried to sell it like a horror film. Yeah. But I don't think it is really a horror film. Um, and to but, go back to Giacchino for a second, I, it's one of his strongest one of his strongest soundtracks. I mean, it's it's poignant, it's, it's melancholy, and it's deeply affecting. Yeah. And yeah, so I'm glad that you really liked it, and I'm I'm excited about uh, with all that and with all that in <laughs> what's mind. about to happen as we end the podcast. Eric Moline, you were right. Of course, I was. 